Hi, I'm Tara Smith and I'm Regulatory Information Officer at the CTPA. So what I love about beauty is it's really inclusive and it's essential for pretty much everyone, which is just a really exciting industry to be in. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. What you say about your brand, your product, and your company really does matter. On today's episode of Beauty Is Your Business, Jessica and I are buzzing about claims and the rules and tools that are available to you as a brand. I'm Denise Dente, your co-host today, and we are here with Kara Smith and, of course, my co-host, Jessica. This is a topic that we really love in today's environment with brands and companies, even retailers, making various claims about their products or their companies or certifications. I know this is something that's very much on our radar screen. Yeah, we spend so much time, right, Denise, speaking about this, and it seems probably even a disproportionate amount of time, but it's because there's so much opportunity for brands and retailers to do this right from the beginning with a little bit of planning, a little bit of knowledge, they can get it right where when you don't get it right, then you have lots of issues along the way that could have been avoided. Some you can't, we all know that we spend a lot of time talking about it, but We do like to spend some time on this so that from the get-go, you can plan accordingly. And Karis, we have spoken to you a few times prior to this, but welcome to our podcast. We're super excited to have you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. We have seen here in the U.S. and internationally, this hit the front pages of some of the industry trade publications, some of the big announcements that have been made about companies making certain claims, some legal issues that brands and retailers have experienced, particularly in this category of things like clean claims, free of claims. Now this term blurring even is really coming about. And so this topic of claims, claim substantiation, what a brand needs to know is very timely. And Karis, I know that you sit in the UK And we'd like to also talk about some of the differences between the EU, the UK, and the US. So today's conversation is rather robust, but let's start with you and what you do at your organization. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely some disparity across different territories, but definitely some similarities. And I think that's a really important place to look as well. So yes, who is the CTPA and what do I do? So the CTPA is the Trade Association for Cosmetics in the UK. If you think of the Personal Care Products Council, the PCPC in the USA, we're the UK equivalent to that. So I'm sure a lot of people out there that are US brands are probably members for the PCPC. So we're the same. Um, So we're a membership organization. We represent about 85% of the UK cosmetics industry by value. So we've got a huge sort of span of different companies that are members, everyone across the supply chain. So people with raw material suppliers, the manufacturers, branding and marketing, which obviously is a huge part of claims, regulatory, trade, absolutely everything. In terms of what the work is specifically that we look at, is mainly about the strictly legal framework for cosmetics. 
that includes things like cranes, but it's also about the safety of cosmetic and personal care products as well. And the way we do that is mainly by giving out advice and guidance, but also by creating and promoting best practice across industry. Because obviously, we know regulations can be pretty open to interpretation. So it's really helpful to get some specific ways of implementing that regulation and being able to put it into business processes. In terms of what we do with regulation um, on kind of a top level as well, we also work with the government. So our regulators in the UK is the Office of Product Safety and Standards, the OPSS, and we'll meet with them to understand about any regulatory updates that are coming in that we can update our members on. But also we give them information about how industry will be able to implement things. So if they give us a scary bit of regulation, we're like, I actually don't think we can implement that. For example, I don't know if anyone's aware of responsible person labeling, but that's a big thing as part of the management labeling in the UK. You have to have a responsible person, has to be labeled on pack. And obviously when we left the EU, which may come up a few times in this podcast, because obviously it's really changed how cosmetics are regulated for us. When we left the EU, obviously, if people had an EU responsible person, they then had to have a UK one, which is one step of the uh, implementation process. But actually having products with the previous RP on pack has got to be a huge thing for people to update. So we worked with our regulators to ensure there was a deadline extension so people could implement that. So they didn't have to withdraw products from the market, which obviously is an expensive process. But it's also really unsustainable in a world which we're trying to be a bit greener as well. We help with our members' understanding of those regulations as well. Another thing that we might look at is things like dispelling myths and misinformation about cosmetics. As you've mentioned, free from claims may be one of those areas that might, we might look at with that. Things when we had claims like paraben free, we had to make sure that consumers were aware of the safety of cosmetics. And just because a product has a paraben in it doesn't mean that it's not safe to use. And obviously that sort of generated a lot of issues within industry um, and a lot of products were sort of seen as unsafe to consumers when they, you know, they really weren't. So there's a lot of information we put out there to both the consumers and also to industry, because again, we need to stop companies from making those claims, again, to make sure there's no denigrating of the industry as a whole and of those other products. It's really important that the industry is competitive on a fair playing field. And everyone's playing by the rules from that sense. For me specifically, I look at the UK and the EU regulations. That's a huge specialism in claims for me. As I mentioned, my background is actually working for a testing house, substantiating advertising claims. So it's a really, really big focus from my part on the regulatory side, but obviously across all of the different um, regulations as well that are applicable to claims. At the moment, big focus on things like green claims, environmental claims, Things like uh, borderline products, and that's going to be a huge thing for any brands that are in the UK and the US, because there's different classifications of products, and other things like communicating claims information. That's a great overview, Karis. Thank you for walking us through it. I want to dive right in and just ask you the burning question I have are, what are the top three or three or four things US brands make a mistake about coming into the UK when it revolves around regulations or even claims? What's kind of your top three, if you guys could just stop doing this? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's hard to say about making mistakes. Again, if the information's out there and it's easy to follow and it's easy to interpret, people will be able to navigate it. But it's easy to say that regulation is difficult to read, as I mentioned. 
And some top things that people might not like, I'll start off with what I just mentioned, is things like different type of claims that are very popular in the USA that are not really allowed over in the UK and that can get caught out. So things like free fund claims is a really good example of that. We're very aware of brands that are in the US that use free fund claims because the consumers, again, have that misinformation. They think that they need these certain products. So understandably, brands need to make those claims because if they don't, the consumer won't purchase their product. Really puts you in a rock and a hard place because you obviously don't want to spread that misinformation, but you want people to buy your product. So as I said, things like paraben free is a really good example of that. However, if you use that claim in the UK or in the EU even, then you could find that your product is non-compliant or that it's picked up by sort of regulatory authorities that can't see any use in the claim or think that you're being unfair to the market as a whole and that you're not giving information, the right information to consumers. Another really good um, free from claim that I've seen in US brands is gluten-free which I find really, really funny because obviously I don't know many cosmetics have gluten in them anyway. And obviously if you have a gluten allergy or intolerance, it's most likely going to be through digestion and not for something you put on your skin. So I think that was a really good example. I saw of like a fad finding its way into cosmetics. Obviously it's a, you know, there are people with gluten intolerances, but it's also can be a dietary choice. So people taking that dietary choice and putting it into a cosmetic, I found quite interesting. However, on the other side of that, things like suitable for vegans, it's completely understandable and acceptable because that's a lifestyle choice that is to do, you know, across the whole different sectors. So not just for food, but obviously if you don't want anything that has animal products, that would be important to know for cosmetics as well. So using that as an example, not every free from claim is obviously banned or not allowed or completely avoidable. If you want to be able to communicate to a consumer and you know that something like a lifestyle choice like veganism is something you need to include on your product, it's really important to have that on there. So I guess the most important thing is understanding what would your consumer understand about it? And is the claim being fair to the industry? That's how you can make the right choice about a free from claim. There's a very helpful document. I'm going to be really boring now. This is the regulatory side of me, but it's a good tip to know. There's a really helpful document called the Technical Document on Cosmetic Claims. It's an EU document, but very applicable in the UK. And they actually break down the common criteria, which is part of the cosmetic regulation for claims. They break it down and say about how each part of the common criteria relates to free from claims specifically and give some really, really good examples on that about when, you know, those choices can be made. So free bond claims is a really important note for US brands, which is disparity in the UK. The other one I wanted to bring up was borderlines. So a borderline is not a product type. A borderline is a terminology we use when a product is either classified as a cosmetic and it's saying things about it that takes out the cosmetic realm. So for example, it could be a product like a cleanser, and then you say it's to help with acne-prone skin or to treat acne. So acne is an adverse skin condition. Therefore, no matter what the cosmetic benefits of the product are, as soon as you mention something like acne, it's going to take it into the medicinal realm, and it's going to be a medicinal product. Obviously, if it's not licensed as a medicinal product, it's going to be illegal. So that's a really good example there, and that's any adverse condition. We also see ones for eczema, psoriasis, it's such a common mistake people make because you might have data, you might have piles of data to say that your product's really good for these skin conditions. 
because obviously that's a huge part of claims, claim substantiation, but that data doesn't mean anything if it's for the wrong type of product. So that's a really common thing we see with borderlines. The other sort of sign we see is where people assume because it has a cosmetic function, then it is a cosmetic product, but it's something like the application zone may take it out of there. So my example of that is something like a beauty tool. So we see loads of things like jade rollers, which have like really good benefits for your skin, but it's not a cosmetic because it's not a substance or a mixture. So it's not a cosmetic product. You can make beauty claims about it, but you're not looking at cosmetic regulation. You're looking at a whole different advertising regulation. The other kind of one I see from that is supplements. So beauty supplements are another one that I often get asked about in terms of regulation. But again, you eat a beauty supplement, you don't put it on your skin or put it on any external part of your body. And so therefore it doesn't fall within the cosmetic definition so it wouldn't be applicable. On the other side of that, I think a really good example when a UK product is a different classification in the US specifically, things like sunscreen products. So obviously in the US, you have them as an OTC, over-the-counter product, and in the UK, they are cosmetics. So they would have to abide by the cosmetic regulation. And again, that has implications on claims. Um, so it's really important to have this kind of information. The other really important thing to be aware of if you're a US brand going to the UK is things like ingredient regulations. So there may be different ingredient allowances in the products that you'll need to be aware of. So a really good example of that is teeth whitening products, which if there's a certain level of hydrogen peroxide, there's a differing level that's allowed in the UK and the USA. So you could accidentally, or, you know, hopefully accidentally, hopefully on purpose, you could find yourself selling a product that is banned or restricted ingredient in the UK. And again, to me, that brings back to claims because obviously you're thinking about the product can do, what you think about what you want to say about it, but you need to actually think about what those restrictions are on ingredient as well. So we started this by talking about access to some tools and how do brands find out? Because I think that this is a topic when you have a brand and you have marketers and salespeople trying to differentiate your product and trying to stand out on a shelf. You have your product ingredients and all of these other things that you want to highlight and you want to showcase, but then there's, can you do it? And what are the rules and tools that people can have access to? So can you shed some light on that for us? When you think about what you can say about a product, that's really the two things that I would look at. The product classification is what you're saying about your product going to be understood by the consumer as a cosmetic claim. And then the substantiation is obviously hugely important. Do you have evidence which is verifiable and reliable to back up that claim? So we, there's quite a few tools out there that you can use. And I'm going to have a really shameless plug now because we've just released some claim substantiation tools. They're accessible to the entire industry. They're not just for our members. Um, so we've just published those on our website. In terms of specifically the claim substantiation, we have a tool which breaks down the different things you need to think about when you're making a claim, how that claim links together, and then how to present that evidence, which all sounds pretty straightforward, but you would be surprised. We developed this tool with massive stakeholders in the UK for advertising, so our advertising regulators, and their main bugbear when we start discussing claim substantiation is that they may find a claim on a product that says reduces 85% of wrinkles, and they say, okay, where's your evidence to substantiate your claim? And they get given a study report. There's nothing kind of to link it all together. 
It doesn't say what part of the report actually says that about the product. It doesn't say how it's been established as relating to the ingredients and everything like that. So it seems really, really straightforward. But they, obviously the regulators were just thinking, if there's just a simple way to be able to get all of this information and for us to really clearly see your thought process on how this data relates to this claim, it's going to make things a lot easier for everyone. It's going to make things a lot easier for you to present your data and for you to, you know, reveal yourself within your own team. But it's going to make it a lot easier for authorities to um, understand as well. So that's a really good tool that I would say is out there. I mean, there's regulatory tools or guidance as well. So I mentioned earlier the six common criteria for cosmetic claims, and that's part of the EU regulation that's been transposed into UK law as well. And that breaks down the different, the similar six obviously criteria to make sure that you can make a cosmetic claim that is going to comply with the regulation itself. So you have to have a legally compliant product. It can't be a claim about your product. It's just something that has to happen. So if you said the product complies with UK regulation, that wouldn't be allowed because every product complies with it. It needs to be truthful. So if, for example, you said your product contains almond oil or something like that, I'm just not the best example, but if your product contains something like aloe vera or vitamin C, then you would need to make sure that obviously the ingredient is present in the product, but of course that it is there at a level that is going to deliver an actual benefit and an effect. It needs to have evidential support, which we mentioned. There's no guidelines in terms of what the evidential support is, but it does need to be obviously reliable and verifiable. There's lots of different ways to substantiate a claim, and there's lots of different ways to wire the claim that has different types of substantiation. An example of that would be if you said a consumer noticed their wrinkles appeared reduced, you could use a consumer study, you could use an in-home user test. But if you said the wrinkles were reduced by 85%, you, of course, would need some kind of instrumental measurement in that study to be able to determine that kind of percentage. The claims also need to be honest. So if you do present your data, you need to make sure that's communicated in a way that is honest. So you can't sort of test on 10 people and then say that that's a verifiable panel size because it's not. It needs to be fair to industry. This is where we can go back to our free farm claims. If they're denigrating the rest of the industry, it's not fair. And the very most important thing is that the consumer needs to be able to make an informed decision about purchasing your product. The claim should give them information that means that it's honest and truthful and all of those things that they know that they're making the right purchase decision for them. What I'd like to know is, okay, so I thought I followed the regulations. I think I'm within those guidelines, but then it turns out that I'm not. What happens? Do you get a letter? Does somebody show up at your door? What's the ramifications for when you haven't followed this or when it's been turned out that something in your in your product doesn't comply with the current regulations? There's a few different ways in which this may happen. So I'm going to pick out two examples that are pretty specific to claims for the purpose of today. I will mention before I go into that, that there is a cosmetic products enforcement regulation which if you're looking straight in the UK, you need to be familiar with that as well as the cosmetics regulation itself. So I will flag that. It essentially outlines how the competent authorities are allowed to enforce any um, non-compliance against that regulation. So that's an important one to flag, but that can wear sort of many different hats. So what I'll mention today, specifically for if the labels on the product, so if you've got claims on your product that are non-compliant, or anything that's on your label that's non-compliant. So that could be things like the RP labeling I mentioned earlier. 
that is enforced by trading standards. So they are people that are very much on in the market. So they'll be looking on shelves, going to different places, um, evaluating products. If you're kind of deemed as non-compliant by trading standards, you can expect to receive a letter or an email, usually an email now. And the first thing they'll do is it might be something like we've seen a claim on your product that says that um, this will reduce your wrinkles by 85%. Can we see um, some evidence to, to substantiate that claim? So usually it's it can be really amicably resolved because it could just be a case of you get an email, you send them the information, you have a conversation with them. And it's really easy to resolve from that side. They're very open to working with people. So if you find that your product is non-compliant and your claim is non-compliant, they will usually help you find a way to bring it into compliance because that's their kind of first step. They don't want to just shut everyone down. And I think there's a side people worry about with industry there. But obviously, you'd have to be working with them. So if you kind of go, oh, I don't really care, then you're going to get into trouble and there can be penalties such as fines involved there as well. On the other side, so they're kind of looking at the product itself, the physical product label. On the other side, you have the advertising authorities. So we've got a self-regulatory system in the UK, which is the Advertising Standards Authority. Now, they do do some scouting for uncompliant claims. So it's all advertising claims specifically for any industry, not just cosmetics. For example, everything that's going on at the moment with green and environmental claims, they might say, okay, we know that there's some claims going on in this area that may be incompliant. So we're going to look into those and then they may seek them. But really on, on a more common scale, they deal with things on a complaints basis. So if a competitor sees your product, they see that 85% wrinkles reduced claim and they say, hey, I've really tried to get that claim. I've got really similar product. Life can only reduce wrinkles by 75%. I don't believe they're making that claim in a way that's actually backed up. Then that's when they might complain to the ASA. And then the ASA would then request the substantiation from the brand. Or it could be a consumer. So it may be something like a consumer has uh, used a shampoo to get rid of brassiness in their hair, cannot see any difference at all, even though there's information on the product saying there's claims to back that up they might complain to ASA, who again will investigate it. So same process, but it might be different people complaining. The thing with the ASA that I will flag is if the complaint is upheld, which basically means you've been asked to remove your advert, they publish it. And the news outlets in the UK will pick up on that. We see it a lot where brands get really tarnished because they've had to have adverts removed. At the end of the day, they've removed those adverts but it stays out there in the zeitgeist because they've had it complained about and people can access that information. They Google that brand, it might be one of the first things they see. So that's where there's a lot of responsibility for a brand to make sure that they're compliant in the first instance. They don't get that bad reputation, that bad name. I do want to flag, as well as the Advertising Standards Authority, which is the self-regulatory system, we also have the Competition and Markets Authority. The reason I want to flag this is because they don't deal with the complaints. They don't necessarily look into one-on-one cases, but they do look at industry claims that go across all sectors. And right now they're doing a green claims review. They started off on the fashion industry, looking at fast fashion, and they've now opened it up to other consumer goods industries, including cosmetics. So for any cosmetic brands making green or environmental claims about your products right now, there is an investigation going on. Hopefully you're all making fantastic compliant claims, but if you're not, it's really important that you're aware of it. And if you're also not aware of it, the Competition Markets Authority or the CMA 
They released the Green Claims Code in 2020. So that gives a breakdown and a checklist of making sure your claims are compliant for environmental claims, again, against all sectors. But it's really important, again, a tool for you to know about to make sure you can make those claims there as well. We have seen the ripple effect and the sting that happens with a brand and or retailer when a claim is made or when something can't get substantiated. We've seen the same. So thank you for bringing that up. It does lend itself to the question of social media, because here in the U.S. right now, and I'm sure internationally as well, it's a big topic. You've got influencers and people that are being paid by brands to talk about the products, but they may or may not be completely aware of some of the substantiations required and some of the claims and the statements. They're kind of free-flowing and talking about their personal experience with the product. So can you shed any light on that or tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So there's really helpful advice and guidance from the authorities I just mentioned on social media advertising and responsible social media advertising for influencers in particular. So the ASA has guidance for influencers specifically, and the CMA has guidance for social media advertising as well. Because as you said, it's such a prevalent and actually really important way to market products. To get your target market, especially sort of a Gen Z and millennial, you really need to be using social media to get your products advertised. And influencers are a huge, like a really great way of doing that. So that guidance does exist there. And I would recommend again for any brand that's going to be working with influencers to make sure they're very aware of it and actually to share that guidance with the influencers specifically. We all know that people can become influencers overnight and have expecting normal people with you know a normal life that have got no background in regulations to then be able to understand all these really complex regulations that are out there. It's not going to be easy for them if they don't have guidance from the people that they're actually working with. And it's the brand's responsibility to make sure they're giving them that guidance and that assistance. We've seen the ASA here crack down on those influencers in particular. Now, there are some irresponsible behaviors. It's things like including hashtag ad. I don't know if that's in the same in the US, but you have to have something that's like a hashtag advertisement over here to make it clear to the, the viewers that it is an advert and they're getting paid for it or anything like that. So sometimes influencers choose not to do that. And that's obviously one thing, but they also get named and shamed by the ASA. So for example, if you're working with an influencer that didn't know about the regulations, they could get called out, which isn't really fair on them either. I know we only have a few minutes left. We didn't really get to touch on the clean and green claims. So in a few minutes, could you wrap up for us a little bit about where the UK and EU is when it comes to green and clean, are there specific regulations that define them? And are there specific now regulations on how to substantiate them? So with green claims and specifically, and for cosmetics and all products, look at the CMA's green claims code. That will give you all the information about what a green claim is. And essentially a green claim is something that either doesn't damage the environment or that is less damaging to the environment, or it's neutral to the environment, essentially. So the Green Claims Code will break down all of the different things you have to put into place to be able to make those claims reliably. There is no specific guidance on how to substantiate a claim. 
and that includes for green claims as well. It's too difficult, it's too broad, and it's too subjective to the product and to what the brand can actually perform. So there is um, really helpful guidance there. I will flag that there is a new EU law coming in, the Green Claims Directive, that has very strict outlines on different types of substantiation, different types of claims being made. If you are selling in the EU or if you're looking to sell in the EU, you need to look at that before you do green claims. Now, that is not published yet. We've only had that in draft phase. So it's more of a case of have it on your radar that will potentially be coming in this year. So that's really important to be aware of. It's not going to give you any specific way to be able to substantiate a claim, but it will tell you essentially what not to say, which is always just as important sometimes as knowing what to say. Clean beauty is one of those things, it's almost a swear word at the CTPA, I'll be honest, because it's one of those claims that doesn't really mean anything. So I always say to people, what does your consumer understand about a claim? I said that a few times during this recording, and I'll say it again. What does a consumer understand about the claim clean beauty? If they were going to go into a store and they had one aisle which says clean beauty and one aisle that doesn't say clean beauty, what's going to be the difference in those products? There's probably not going to be an awful lot of difference, or it's just going to be the way it's been advertised and the way it's been displayed, which again, is not very truthful to the consumer if they're getting the same product but presented in a different way. That's how we look at it. From my side and from, from any claim, instead of using things like buzzwords and instead of using things that are on trend, think about what clean beauty means to you as a brand. So why are you calling it clean beauty? And say those things, because those are the things that will be able to communicate to your consumer. It may be things like if it has minimal ingredients, we know that that's something that's picked up, say about the ingredients that the product has in it in that case. And it may be something like having more natural ingredients, then in that case, say about the natural ingredients your product contains. So yes, very much a case of always going back to what does this mean to a consumer and making sure you're communicating that in particular. Thank you so much, Karis, for all this information. We know that we're going to have to have a follow-up to this conversation today because there is so much, but we do know how important this is to get right and to do everything that you can, a brand can, to get it right from the beginning so you don't stumble and fall through the process. So we appreciate all of your information that you've shared so far. If our audience does want to reach out to you or your organization, how can they do that? Absolutely. So our website is www.ctpa.org.uk and you can find some public information on there as well, including the claims, but it's also got contact information on there if you want to reach out for any questions or even for membership if you're for selling in the UK. Thank you so much. And if you want to keep buzzing with us, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.